0: What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder Podcast where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and Instagram at Talk Louder Podcast. And of course, our website, TalkLouderPodcast.com. I'm Metal Dave along with my co host, Jason McMaster. And today's guest is Mr. Chris Gates. We're so happy to have him. He's been around the Austin music scene forever. He's been around the international music scene. You guys know him probably best as the founding member and guitarist, one of the founding members and guitarist of Junkyard. Uh, He also has a history before that with a band called the Big Boys that was highly influential in the punk rock scene. And uh, his story is just amazing, fantastic. Chris
1: is the reason Austin used to be cool
0: yeah (laughs) and thank and thankfully he's still here so he's kind of so austin's still cool because of chris gates he's still upping our cool cred
1: yeah yeah the the cool the cool cred that you know people oh i went to austin it's cool they're going to mention nothing that's related to chris gates so obviously the things that they think are cool are like post cool austin so <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. Um, if I may, I want to throw this in here. You, it was a good, good setup. You did Dave. Dave, how are you, by the way?
0: I'm fantastic, man. Excellent. You know. Yeah.
1: We just, we, we get to hang out with Chris Gates. So yeah. here's the deal. I want to, I want to just like, you know, vomit on you guys for a second here at talk louder. Um, Chris Gates is the reason Chris Gates is how the metal guys in the early Austin scene, Learned how to make a poster To print your own t-shirts The DIY thing was started by the punk rockers I've mentioned it a hundred times On this show Chris Gates is the reason Um I tell the story, uh, and I'll tell it again uh, about how I run into Chris Gates on, you know, downtown Austin, hanging up posters for his show. He's not even on the bill. It's my show. Shouldn't I be the one post putting up the posters on telephone poles in 1983? Yes, it's Chris. I should. Well, (laughs) the thing is, is we were, and I was driving all over town and hitting these areas, and and here I see a guy who's not even on the his band's not even on the show, hanging up posters. you know what you don't see that anymore
0: yeah very passionate yeah. dude in everything he yes. does and yes. he could, dating all the way back like you said um you know a lot of people know him as the musician on stage but before any of that he was you know as you said helping watchtower and uh he brought a slayer to austin for the first time as a as a concert promoter and a and I don't know if he booked gigs or just promoted them or whatever, but he had a hand in making things happen. And by making things happen, I'm talking about bringing bands like Slayer, Watchtower, uh, Trouble, Trouble. I yeah, think he was, there's, a,
1: there's a ton of there's a ton of bands. I, I do think that he was involved. He mentioned Exciter, but. But he he was he said Exciter from Florida le- earlier when we were talking to him, and he meant Nasty Savage. So there's a, that opens up a whole other can of worms. He was bringing bands from it was interco- it was coastal. He was bringing bands from all over the place to yeah. uh, you know Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Florida. Uh, and it was all because his phone number was the phone, the only phone number that yeah. anyone had in Austin. If someone needed a fucking gig, yeah,
0: it was like for a good rock show, call Chris Gates.
1: Yeah, it was on a bathroom wall. Yeah, it's you on know. a bathroom wall, so uh, which is which is perfect, which is just fantastic. And I I personally love the guy so much yeah. because uh he's what's the word that i'm I'm. it's like he's guileless he, you know what he's, i mean he's, he's, he's genuine he's, too yeah it doesn't it, it there's no uh there's no weirdness you know and if there ever was it's gone now because of the changes that he's the improvements he's made upon his life and he'll tell you all about them <laughs>
0: at what point did your uh your fandom of rock music you're collecting 45s you're you know you're going to concerts you're meeting the ramones thanks to a co-worker at what point do you buy your first guitar and start learning how to play
2: i was about 13 you know like and uh, I got a 1961 Fender Mustang and this little solid state Univox amp that no matter how loud you turned it up, it wouldn't distort. And, uh, <laughs> and, and th- th- <laughs> you know, there was people don't know what it was like back then, but like there were 2,500 people in my high school and there was one other person who played guitar.
1: That's a lot like, of folks. When not, not enough guitar players.
2: You know, it's like back then. I mean, you remember Jason, it was like, you can't be an artist or a musician or they're from New York or London They're not you in Texas for sure. It right. was like journey at the Normo dome and me in my room with a guitar and nothing in between. Right. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you know, and I would find guys to play with here and there. The first band I ever played with was with a talent show with, with a bunch of black guys from the football team doing a cool in the gang cover. And, you know, and then, then it That's was like, awesome. I went to a, I went to a, uh, a church youth group overnight lock-in thing. And was this that older, at, I'm
1: sorry, was that at McCallum?
2: Yeah, I was still in, at Lamar Junior High. At, oh, at, Lamar at,
1: Junior? Oh, that's in junior, junior high. Whoa. That's and high. I
2: went to this early. lock-in thing, and this older kid was there, and he brought a copy of Big Bamboo by Chi Chen Chong, Machine Head and Paranoid. And so I heard those oh three records God. at the same time. And like, my life was never the same.
1: Oh my God. You know, that's so, like heavy, metal is parking, still, so yeah, heavy metal parking lot, dude.
2: Yeah. Machine Ed is still one of my all time favorite records. Wow. And, you know, and uh, so, you know, and I'm, I'm still going to garage sales and I'd run across a copy of raw power when I was in seventh grade and, mm-hmm. and Funhouse, And like, I love those. And I was, you know, my parents were fairly sure I was gay in middle school because I I was growing my hair out. I wasn't talking to anybody, especially girls. And I was carrying around Bowie and Stooges records all the time. But, uh, you
1: know, it's you not know, their, it's not really their fault that they thought that. What's no, there not to at worry all.
2: About? No, You know, not at all. I mean, there's not that not like they would have cared, but it, it was just like, no. what's um, going on with Chris? You know, and,
1: yeah. And, and, yeah. What's there to worry about? Yeah. Your brother's knew though. Your brother's knew What's up?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, I'm they- the oldest, so they were kind of following up behind me. And, oh,
1: right. Okay, that's and, right.
2: Uh, you know, and I, I, about nine or ten months after hearing uh, Machine Head and Paranoid at a garage sale, I ran across Get Your Wings and the first Aerosmith record. And I hadn't heard anything by Aerosmith at that point because no radio stations in Austin played anything like Aerosmith or rock and roll at all.
1: Not but yet. I had re-
2: yeah. I had read their name in one hit parade or something, so I bought both of them for like fifty cents a piece and brought them home and like, "Get Your Wings" became my new favorite record. And
1: well, what what year is this? If those records are in a garage sale, it was early seventy four, maybe. Yeah. Then why are those br- fairly new releases? Someone just selling their estate? college students yeah oh right oh right you know college college students getting rid of shit right okay somebody's broke yeah it's yeah Yeah. it's all college lucky they're broken you're lucky yeah yeah
0: Yeah. sweet so that's uh i'm a i'm a huge aerosmith fan and get your wings is is just a masterpiece like i
2: learned to play guitar listening to get your wings and the first ted nugent solo record and the first bad company record and the first couple is Easy Top records, you know, it's like because there were things on there that were approachable, that were almost you could almost figure them out by listening to the ra- the record, you know. And it was, you know, I remember figuring out same old song and dance and just just the riff on same old song and dance, and I just probably played that for like a
1: month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. Well, it's well, a if great you, career. if you could yeah. once yeah. you figure out
1: how to tune it, you know. Yeah. Um. We're so doing, you, we're,
0: I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dave. Um, knowing you as long as I have and knowing your musical background, I've never really pegged you as a metal dude. So in your younger years, were you ever, I mean, you mentioned Aerosmith, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, and you know, you could, you could classify those as metal bands, but, um,
2: yeah, see, I would never call them metal.
0: No. Me okay. Neither. So they're hard so, rock bands.
2: I'm a hard rock guy.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Like, so yeah. that, I guess that's my question. I, Deep I never, purple, pegged,
2: not Black Sabbath. Like I like Black Sabbath. I like Deep Purple better. Mm-hmm. Um, okay you know for me i guess the difference in metal and hard rock is hard rock is still sort of blues based and metal kind of isn't gotcha. you know yeah. um, metal doesn't swing much and and hard rock does you know you can still hear the blues in deep purple and in aerosmith but there's no there's not a lot of blues real obviously in
3: you know iron in maiden. black yeah. sabbath
2: or iron maiden or judas priest which gotcha. i i loved them too yeah You know, i mean i loved everything in high school like One of the, I mean, I told you about the lock in and deep purple and black Sabbath, but like less than a year later, I went over to this kid's house who lived in my neighborhood and he wasn't home, but his mom was there. So I was waiting, ended up waiting for about an hour for him to show up. And she played me the first John Prine record and small change by Tom Waits, one side of each record. And like, once again, my life was never the same. And those are two of my all time favorite records. Wow. You know, very diverse. Oh my God. I don't know what this stuff is, but I got to go hear more. So, yeah.
0: Yeah let's fast forward um to your days in um the big boys um
1: yeah how long after it was you were hearing those records and then forming your forming you know what ended up what was the first band before what turned into big boys is i'm sorry dave to take over your question but that's kind of where i was going a few minutes ago it's like what what sort of snowballed into the big boys if there was something else right before it and i'm i'm as far as like me and dave know your history or feel like we do feel like if there was anything right before the big boys i don't know what it is school me please
2: there wasn't it was cover bands in high school and you know just sort of banging around and like honestly the the way it all happened was like i was a huge rock guy i love you know singer songwriters but for me, by about 1977, like the last records I bought, hard rock records I bought, were, uh, was uh, Toys in the Attic and the first Van Halen record. And, and after that, it all started feeling real overblown and you know, Steve Perry joins Journey and Michael McDonald joins the Doobie Brothers and it's all this lame, it just feels lame to me. And, and, uh, and right around the same time, I see the Ramones and then I hear Elvis Costello and I see Devo on Saturday Night Live. And this feels fresh. This reminds me of that bubblegum rock and some of the glam stuff that I liked in middle school. And it doesn't, it's stripped down and it ha- doesn't have all that pomp and circumstance and late 70s rock star nonsense with it. And, uh, The cover band I was in rehearsed in the basement of this church off of 22nd Guadalupe down by the campus. And one Friday night after we had been jamming, I was riding my bike home and I rode right past Raul's and there were all these people hanging around outside and they looked like the people that had been at the Ramones concert. So I locked my bike up and I went in and I saw two songs by this band called the mistakes. And then I saw a band called the next and was like, Mm. I'm a senior in high school. And I go, I don't know what this place is, but this is going to be my new home. Like, I want to know yeah. who these people are. Right. And Because that music scene was approachable. It was doable. Like, so I didn't the, know how I got from my bedroom to the Irwin Center, but I could see how I could get into Raul.
1: Sure.
0: Yeah. The, the for, those are, for those the who mistake. are listening that don't know, Raul's was, you know, sort Thank of a, it was almost Austin's version of CBGB's, just to, to, to put it bluntly. And and kind everyone, of at the same
1: time. Everyone yeah. played there, like a legendary punk, band oh, uh, right. hole in the wall. dive. Yeah, exactly. kind it, of it. yeah. It's
2: where it started in Austin. And like I had started skateboarding in 75, 76, I met biscuit who lived next door to this kid. I knew, and he came back from California with a urethane wheel skateboard in about 1974 or 75. And we went, Oh, that's badass So we all started skateboarding. And, uh, and then along the way, I met Tim Kerr, the guitar player from the big boys and like Tim and, and his wife and I went and saw a band play at Raul's just after I graduated high school. And, uh, and the Hispanic guys that ran the plays, one of them was the dad of this kid who played football with my little brother at McCallum. So like I recognized him from the games. And so Tim said, I wonder what it takes to play here. So I got up and went back and talked to this guy, Bobby Morales and said, Bobby, what does it take to play here? And he said, well, when do you want to play? and nice. so i went running back to tim and said dude he said when do you want to play and so we started <laughs> i mean literally that's what it was he said when do you want to play so we started
1: band. oh that's perfect so i want to i want i want to the, the big boys yeah yeah, yeah. i want to pause uh the mistakes and the next those were local bands correct yeah and the next i believe someone in the next was employed at the infamous now uh, another raw deal restaurant, if not the raw deal, uh here in Austin, Texas, who probably employed half of the musicians in town at some point, including yeah. myself and David Roach. Yeah. So, yeah. But I think the bass player where I worked with the bass player for the next, I think, yeah. down there at another raw deal. Yeah, probably. Anyway, I wanted to just kind of throw that in there. So the people who are local around here who are people of a certain age might recall the <laughs> these names and these bands and these flyers and rauls and yeah and uh, i love the story about you running back to mr morales and saying and just getting a gig on the fly like that
2: yeah i mean like that we was, went back and we T- T- biscuit had always been singing he had a great voice so we asked him to be the singer he almost didn't do it because somebody else had asked him before us but that fell apart And we were trying to find a drummer and we ran into this. I ran into this guy, Steve Collier, my first day at UT. And like we used to skateboard together and he was a drummer. So he became the drummer and we started playing shortly thereafter, you know, and and uh, one thing led to another.
0: And you guys kind of became the kings of the whole Raul's Austin punk rock scene shortly thereafter. I mean, you you start off. Yeah. Yeah. You start off as a fan, just trying to get into Raoul's and and checking out bands. And then you start the big boys and the big boys by anyone that, you know, as far as anyone that ever paid attention to Austin music history, you, you're sort of inextricably linked to Raoul's. And in, in fact, your first album is called Live at Raoul's with uh, yeah. the Split with the Dicks. So tell us about that scene and you guys sort of rising to the top of the ranks and, you know, just give give us a snapshot of what the Austin punk rock scene looked like at that time.
2: One of the, the coolest thing about the scene here is that like in a lot of places, all the bands sound like variations on a theme, like all the bands are hardcore bands or something like that. But, but Austin was really because the punk scene was coming up out of the film school and the drama school and the architecture school at UT um and a lot of the people who started the punk scene were four or five years older than me and they were very much focused on new york on television and the dolls and all the stuff happening at seabees early on and so there was like this insane diversity of music here and it was everybody supported it especially in the early days um where, you know, the, nobody sounded like anybody else. Everybody was really good at what they did, really creative. And uh, just the music was all over the map. And like and we were too. And, you know, they just told us, just do whatever you want, which was great. You know, we were terrible for the first six months, but we figured it out. And Biscuit was always entertaining. And that kept getting us gigs in the start.
1: What year, what year was this sort of like, uh, you know, uh, cocoon butterfly kind of time?
2: really what happened was we had been playing around for about a year. We decided when we were, if we were a band for six months, we wanted to make a single. So we did. Um, And people were, most of the bands, local bands hadn't done that. Like only really one band had put out a single at that point. And we, but, and all the bands that have been around longer than us hadn't done it yet, but we went screw it and we did it. And then the next summer we decided to go on tour. We had met black flag. We had played with them in Austin. This is 1981. Okay. And we had been playing to the same 40 or 50 people for a, a year. And then we left and we went to California on tour and we did about eight or nine shows in a 10 two week trip. Almost nobody saw us. Nobody knew who we were. Our record wasn't available outside of Austin. But when we came back, there were like 150 people at our first show. It's like suddenly people started taking us seriously because we went on tour. And, uh, and because of the guys that were in the band, we were very much into this DIY thing. And we were all really good at different things and, you know, at, at art and making posters and putting out flyers and we would book shows. And even when Raul's and, and the other clubs closed, we had learned from black flag about renting halls. So we started renting halls and putting on our own shows and, uh, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then, you know, when we put the, the fun, fun, funny P out on, and it had Hollywood swinging on it. We started that started getting a lot of play in like new wave dance clubs and stuff. So suddenly our audience was much larger than just the punk scene. We were playing to five, six, seven, eight hundred people when most of the shows were a couple hundred. And you know, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, until it until we finally imploded. But uh, you know, yeah. it was it was awesome. You
0: guys. Uh... You guys are sort of credited with uh, introducing sort of a little bit of a funk element into the punk slash hardcore hybrid, whatever you want to call it. And bands like, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers and 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 I guess like Fishbone, these these guys went on to sort of uh, they, they kind of ended up defining the genre. But you were sort of there first. And those bands, I think, would even cite you as an influence. So what kind of brought that funk element into it, into the mix?
2: We had this mindset in the band of we can do anything we want as a band, like anything. If something interests us, let's try it. And Biscuit was really his favorite music was old soul and R&B. And he had a phenomenal voice. And I had played like I was a big fan of Cool and the Gang and the Ohio Players and and all that stuff, the funk from the early 70s because I had been introduced to it by these guys in middle school. They all, you know, I could barely play the guitar, but they showed me what to play and they were great on their instruments. And we, you know, they took me to see Ohio players and cameo and earth, wind and fire, or I can't cool in the gang at the, at Palmer auditorium, like, you know, in 1974 or something. And so I had that in my background and Tim liked funk too. And so we started fooling around with the ideas. And then, you know, it occurred to me, like I got a brother who plays trombone, who's still in the high school band. I bet I could get him and some of his friends to come be a horn section. And one thing led to another.
0: Yeah. You know? Well, I, I think it's great that, you know, like, especially the chili peppers went on to sort of, you know, this international acclaim and, um, they, they cite you as an influence and, uh, and and the, a and the whole genre sort of popped up based on that sound. You know, I, I mentioned the Chili Peppers and Fishbone, but you could throw in Faith No More. And, uh, you know, just uh, any any band that added sort of a funk element to what was at the time considered, you know, uh, you got your chocolate in my peanut butter kind of thing, you
2: know? Right. Well, and, you know, and once again, we had very broad tastes. And it wasn't just we like the Sex Pistols or we like the Ramones, We did, but we also were really big fans of Gang of Four and Joy Division and Public Image and like all the weird stuff that was coming out, too. And a lot of that stuff had a sort of a funk element to it. And we just took it one step further and said, what would happen if we played actual funk like, you know, our version? Yeah. You know, but the the difference in us and a band like the Chili Peppers or Fishbone is that they made that their thing. And that was just maybe one of five different things that we did over the course of a set. Right. right. You know, it wasn't ever, there were only ever three or four funk songs in the set ever. And we played 25 songs every time we played. So it was still only an hour. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned the fun, fun, fun EP and um, anyone who lives in Austin has heard of the fun, fun, fun festival. It's a, it's a music festival for anyone listening. That's not familiar. It's a music festival that started here in Austin and it's become, it became huge. It had a good run for a number of years, um, you know, in, in a town that's got multiple music festivals on the calendar each year, fun, fun, fun became one of the biggest, you could compare it, you know, you could say it in the same breath as, you know, Austin city limits or South by Southwest or, or one of those, um, so my question to you is, I've always wanted to know this. Did you guys get any sort of compensation for them yeah. taking the name of your song and turning it into the name of the festival? It doesn't work like that.
2: No, no. But, you know, I mean, otherwise we would have had to pay the Beach Boys because they got there first. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, the, but the festival, it not only took the name, right? But later, as I got to know Grant, the guy who started it, it took the mentality of the song. Because in the second verse of the song, like at the time that I wrote the song, the punk scene was becoming fragmented, and like hardcore people didn't like people doing what they called new wave, but was really post-punk or anything weird. They just liked hardcore, and you weren't, you know, you had to be. You're for us or you're against us, and what? And I didn't have the patience for that nonsense. So it was about, you know, the the, the second verse of the song is about liking all of these bands, like all of them, and I'm, I refuse to choose. You can't make me. It's, you know, and, and he took that mindset. And so like, if you look at the, at the, the bills that they would put together, it would be very diverse Yeah, because that was the mindset is like, why can't we do a festival where quicksand and grandmaster flash and ministry are all playing on the same day?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Having many flavors is the idea.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: very, you don't, why are you going to just look at black and white when you can have color?
2: And ultimately it was very flattering and humbling for him to have Mm. taken that song 20 years after it came out and turned it into something really cool. Cause that was the whole mindset of, of the big boys is like, this is, it's great that you love us. What are you doing? What are we going to do on our day off? We need to come see you. Go start a band or a festival. what,
1: What do you think if I say something like, aren't, aren't the big boys famous by, you know, uh, Hey, go, what is it? Shut up, go form your own band or yes. something like that. Yeah, all,
2: all of our records said, go start your own. Now yeah. go start your own band on now it. Now go you know? start
1: your own band. You, you and, can't and one be the, in this one. Start your own. Right.
2: And one of the things that we would do all the time is, is uh, because people put us on shows when we were brand new and could barely play. Mm. And so we were always encouraging people. If you start a band, we'll put you on our show. And we had all these, You know, I saw a picture of this band called The Infected. Uh, The average age in the band was 15, but it was Adam Grossman from Screw and Felix Mm -hmm. from DRI and a guy named Chico and a guy named Richard Mather, who played in a bunch of other bands, Rockbusters and stuff around Mm -hmm. Austin. But like Mm -hmm. they were all in barely in high school. But we but we told them, yeah, you got a band you can play with us. And they played with us at the Ritz.
1: Around here. Those are like household names. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Around here. All great
2: guys. Yeah. you know and, and uh so yeah so we were I, really I, big on on being inclusive and you know yeah get up here even if it's awful at least you did it you know
0: right so, you guys you guys ended up because of uh, because of the diversity in your music you were on a bunch of you know uh very unusual bills I guess you could say like i I you had that chili the chili pepper's actually open for you if I'm not mistaken at some point point. Yeah,
2: one of their earliest gigs out in la was opening for us one time when we were out there
0: That's crazy. And then I saw somewhere that, um, that you played a a gig with Sam Hain. Is that, is that right?
2: Oh yeah. We played a bunch of gigs with Sam Hain and, and, you know, and we, we, all the hardcore bands, but we also played five dates with the Go-Go's and we played, we opened for Grace Jones.
3: Oh wow. wow.
2: You know, that was a, that was a weird one. I don't know that anybody else could have pulled that off because She sang to pre-recorded background music. So her Mm. contract said the opening act can't be a live band because even if they're bad, they'll be more exciting than pre-recorded background music. So the club that was that booked the show gave us money and we went in the studio and recorded backing tracks for 10 songs and then just played them through the PA and went up and sang. We didn't. I
1: don't believe you. We didn't. We didn't. I didn't. Chris, we didn't
2: pretend Chris. to play we put on a skit for each of the 10 songs and whoever was Stop up there singing was no, up
1: you're crazy did 100%. not do that
2: yeah it, it wow. was yeah because because <laughs> for us it was like well this is weird let's do it like everybody wow. else would have went oh, screw that but like that's the kind of thing we were up for
0: tell me wow. about the tell me about the go-go's uh shows because uh the go-go's have a, a core based here out of austin you guys are from austin so is there you know, any kinship on that, uh, you know, that you guys are in this together, going out to conquer the world in the name well, of they Austin were, Or
2: They were on the tour for their very first record and they were playing medium sized clubs. You know, uh, the record had just come out. It hadn't really exploded yet by any stretch. And and uh, because of the crossover thing, like a lot of the new wave clubs where they were playing had been playing Hollywood Swinging and they knew that we drew people in. So, you know, we played with him in Houston and and I think San Antonio and Dallas and then
1: Austin was the last date. I'm interested in the year that was.
2: Uh, yeah, I used to drink. I don't know. Uh, whatever year that record came out, probably 83. <laughs> OK. Wow. Yeah. All right. I mean, the record had literally just come out. So uh,
0: before we get away from the from the big boys uh, touring, tell, tell me a little bit about the Sam Hain shows or, or show. How, was mm-hmm. it plural? I want to know about that.
2: You know, and I can't remember, honestly, because it all kind of blurs together. We did apparently three different shows with the Misfits. And I know Poison 13 did a whole bunch of shows with Sam Hain. But I can't remember if the big boys played with Sam Hain or not. I honestly can't remember. Because that was right in the transition time between those two bands. And like, there was a minute where I was in Sam Hain. Oh, really? Where when the Misfits broke up. Minor Threat had broken up and Lyle and Brian Baker from Minor Threat and Glenn were trying to put a band together and they contacted me to see if I wanted to play bass. And I said, okay, maybe. And, uh, and so we were sending cassettes back and forth to each other. But like at that point, if my memory serves, Brian and Lyle had gone really hardcore into the alarm. They were super into the alarm and Glenn hadn't quite figured out what he wanted to do yet. And they were writing all this music that sounded like the alarm. And uh, it was a little more jangly than what they had done in the past. Yeah. And, and, it, and, you know, but I'm in Texas and they're in D.C. And he's in New York and it's long distance and it peters out. And then six months later, he's got an actual band together.
0: Yeah. So let's wrap up the big boys. Tell us uh, what, what eventually led to the demise of the big boys.
2: Well, there are a lot of varying opinions on this, but ultimately, Tim Carr always gets mad at me when I say this, but ultimately it's money and not, mm-hmm. we weren't fighting over money. We didn't have any. And we started doing longer tours. Like when you're broke and you're sleeping on people's floors, going out for two weeks is one thing, but going out for three months is a whole different thing. And you also have to remember that I was 18 to 23 in the big boys, but Tim is six years older than me. And Biscuit was 13 years older than me. Mm. So Biscuit's sleeping on floors and living on $5 a day at 33 years old. Yeah. 35 years old. And that's freaking hard. Like, I didn't know how much different it was being 35 than being 22, but it's not the same. (laughs) And and it was really hard on him and he didn't manage it well. And I wasn't understanding and and just being, because he made no money doing it.
1: That's hard.
2: If we would have been able to have hotel rooms and a nice van, we might've made it through that. But yeah. but the, the longer tours and the really going in deep and just being completely broke and having no cushion, Biscuit had no cushion. I had no cushion. It just brought out the conflict and the personalities. Ultimately that's what it was.
1: Sure. I you remember, know? I, I, would do that I remember, I recall age. I was just going to make a funny, I, I recall like age, barely recall age like 35 Plus, like, you know, making staking claim in the fact that, oh, OK, I'm, I'm not I can't sleep in cat piss anymore. You know, you sleep over at someone's, yeah. you know, house. Oh, you can crash at my place. And, yeah, there's just the floors, a couple of pillows. And it's like, might as well sleep on the dirt in the back and the alley yeah. behind the club. It's, it's all
2: exciting in your 20s and it's hard in your 30s and it's yeah. brutal in your 40s, even if you're in a hotel. Yeah. you know it yeah. just is
1: so yeah you you draw the line at some but no one can blame you guys for any
2: no I mean there are, there there are specific off. arguments and things that happen that cause the demise of the band but underneath it, it was it had just and a lot of bands broke up right around the same time that started around the same time as us and a lot of it has to do with the same stuff like who's could lasted three extra years but they got some money coming in from the major label deal yeah
1: you yeah. know
2: but a lot yeah. of the other hardcore bands fell apart because they were doing longer tours just like us and they were all broke just like us and it yeah. was just
1: hard yeah so hit, hit, we're we're gonna we're about to switch gears i want to talk about poison 13 for for a minute they may have been short-lived uh you know even shorter uh lived than uh, the big boys correct
2: yeah well the band itself lasted almost the same amount of time my involvement was only the first couple of years oh and then i moved to la to do junkyard and they did it for another year or so after i was gone
1: and we're gonna get to that let's back let's back up to about 1983 yeah 1983 or ish yeah late 83 let's say cuz there's a story I want to tell I've actually told it before here on the podcast but now that we have the man <laughs> in the room uh I want to tell I want to talk about this so this is where I always I've been lately making a joke in our episode tapings where you know not to make it be about me but you know here it is again I was in a band called Watchtower I remember Either your, you or your brother went to school with Billy White. We were just kids in high school. You were almost done with, you were graduated maybe? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I graduated in 79. And it might have been, yeah, so it was, it was your bro, younger brother going to school with Billy White, and they befriended each other at McCallum High School or something. This would have been, like I said, around 83, maybe even earlier. I don't know. And at some point. I just want the world to hear me say this again. You really were uh, a pivotal uh, 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 in in the movement and the growth especially from absolutely nothing because I joined Watchtower in May of 1982. Um I know that you were still doing shows with with the big boys and you had started doing Poison 13 Close to around the same time because I would see you guys around all the time because I had a little band before I was in Watchtower and I would listen to my ear was to the ground yo because know, I just moved here from Corpus Christi like a year earlier. Uh, and my brother Randy had met Felix. Was hanging out with Ben Burton and was hanging around with all of the, you yeah. know, Rob Buford and and Eku and and yeah. just you know all the the South Austin Goon Squad was all there skateboarding and whatever havoc they could yeah, get taking into, taking acid and riding BMX yeah, what, all night long,
3: <laughs> whatever whatever <laughs>
1: it was. Yeah, I was waiting for something like that to top it. So yeah, at some point you hear about Watchtower. And, and, and you start getting us gigs. But my memory of it was
2: there was a girl who I think's name was I think her name was Stacy, who lied to the people at Austin High School and said that she was in the big boys so that we could play at the school <laughs> fat carnival in the fall. Um when where bands from school were playing. And the my point, first away- the
1: spring thing.
2: Right. And my first The first time I remember meeting you guys because there was a band called Crucifix from San Francisco that was staying at my house and they were going to play with us. Um the next night and we let them get up and play three songs and they had like Liberty spikes and, and yeah. sounded like discharge. And the next yeah. thing I know, there's four, there's a bunch of guys standing right at the front of the stage going, what the hell is that? Yeah. And I, and I walked off and it was you and some of the other watchtower guys. And then well, uh, it
1: wasn't, let me, let me correct you a little bit. And that, it's okay that it's kind of muddled because that's going to happen for yeah. the next 45 minutes. That's going to muddling is yeah. going to happen. So um, I had a band called Fallen Angel. There was I had not, at that point, not met Watchtower people. Right. It was Fallen Angel. It was me and Mike Solis's little rock band. Mike played drums, and I played bass and sang, and it was at the spring thing. And I got pictures to prove it, because they're in the yearbook. And then, David and then, signed then I signed my yearbook.
2: And But then I heard about Watchtower not long after that.
1: Correct. This and is I, correct. And, yeah. and
2: I swear and maybe it was from my brother knowing Billy, but mm-hmm. I heard about a party where you guys were playing. Okay. And I went and I watched the set at the party and there was a ton of kids at the party. And when you guys finished, a lot of them left, even though there was still beer. And I went like, Oh, we should do shows at the Ritz. This is awesome. Cause we were, I was setting up all the punk shows at the Ritz. And I, like I said, I always loved hard rock and heavy metal. And I was a huge mm. fan. I helped bring Metallica here the first time, you know, not really helped, but like the promoter called and said, "Do you know anything about this band? And I went, mm. like, I had just seen them in San francisco um in Berkeley, and like went like, Oh my God, you have to bring them and 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 so I was a fan of the new underground metal, yeah, and, uh, and so well, yeah, let's, let's let's do it, you know, let,
1: let's see we'll get back to to all, how we met and how we started working together in a second, but A lot of people need to know, the Slayer fans need to know, that Slayer's first performance in Austin, Texas, on their very first tour downtown at the Ritz Theater Theater, that was an Alamo Drafthouse movie theater for the past decade or whatever, and is now, I guess, closed down again. Um, You brought Slayer to Texas on their first tour in austin texas you are the uh it's your fault that's right you started something here and and uh, yeah i mean i
2: brought i brought slayer i brought trouble i brought exciter from florida um Uh, exciters
1: from canada
2: what what was the band from florida Nasty Savage. Nasty Savage, that's what I'm thinking savage. of. I knew yeah, like,
1: who you were talking about. Like
2: a lot of these a lot of these bands had the same couple of booking agents that were also handling some of the punk bands. Perfect. And so I was the phone number they had in Austin. Perfect. You know, there there, there wasn't a promoter doing that kind of music yet. And so, so they this would is, call me.
1: This is where I want to say, Chris, thanks for getting me a bunch of cool gigs with a bunch of my idols and a bunch of bands I was way way into. Yeah, well, yeah, um, you know. and I and the entire that.
2: reason for doing it was so that I had a show to go to. <laughs> <laughs> wow!
3: Like
2: if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, and yeah. I w- I want to see Slayer. Sure. I had actually I had actually seen. We played a show. The big boys played a show at Berkeley Square with the Dead Kennedys and Flipper on a Saturday night, and we had the next night off. And I was I was wearing a homemade Merciful Fate t-shirt. Oh, oh. And the guy at the club was wearing the clubs going, dude, you know who merciful fate is. You should come back tomorrow. And, uh, and he put me on the guest list and I came back the next night and I saw Exodus Slayer and Metallica.
1: Oh my God. At Berkeley square.
2: Mustaine was still in Metallica. Yeah. Uh, real early for all of them. It was one of somebody's first show in the Bay area. I can't, gotcha. I don't know. But, but I was like, I just walked away going like, that was bad ass. Yes. You know, Cause you know, it was like that was like it was like black flag meets early's priest it's like it's yeah. the best you know
1: yeah 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 a lot of people i think when when the basic basically the thrash metal came in as as early as uh you know i didn't even think that that had been a phrase had been coined yet you know when yeah. you think about 82 83 and all of a sudden metallica and slayer these new bands have one record out you know um, you know, I think that it makes you realize this, like, uh, it makes you get hyped up. On, I didn't know that they could play guitars and drums like that. Right. You, know, it well, made like, you wanna, If you were in, if you had the first Dockin record, it made you want to throw it away.
2: Right. And it, it felt <laughs> antiquated almost immediately. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, right. M- MDC and DRI had records come out and that got labeled thrash. And then wow, yeah, not yeah. long, a year, a year or so later, kill them all. And some of those, you know, mm. the speed mail stuff comes out and going, oh, this is like thrash, but metal.
1: Right. And it's okay. like, oh, Hence you know, thrash metal. Thrash right, and that's right. kind of
2: where it came from was like those MDC ah. and DRI got called thrash because Love it was it. too fast to be hardcore. It had yeah. to have it, it had to have its own name. Yeah. So that, I think that's probably how that happened. I don't know. I never really thought about it until right this minute. So
1: so a lot of people in Austin uh, know, you know, when you hear the the infamous or shit, the famous uh, Continental Club, it's world renowned blues and singer songwriter, a rock bar, basically. I call it Cadillac Cowboys, you know yeah. what I mean it's a it's it's a South Congress it's a especially the way it's blown up now, but there was a time when when you could buy drugs and get a hooker and get mugged all in an hour on South you, Congress yeah. Standing yeah. right in front of the club yeah, yeah you, standing right in front of the Continental Club yeah. you and you booked – uh, say what are you speaking from experience no no i just knew better uh, when okay. my to- when uh, when i was done with whatever business i had down there was none of the aforementioned uh, i got the hell out of there because yeah. i was small and white yeah it was like whatever <laughs> what the
2: rest. When we were doing, even when we were doing the Ritz in 82 and 83, Sixth Street was not a particularly good neighborhood.
1: No, you know? no, no. Yeah. It wasn't happy down there very much. Well, it d- depends on who you are, I guess. But yeah, yeah. Uh, the Continental Club, you booked a thrash metal show in there.
2: Yeah. You know, well, and, the, the funny part oh, was, was. the was that-
1: Slayer. It was S.A. Slayer, Watchtower, and Napalm. Yeah. Not we, to be like used with Napalm Death.
2: The, uh This guy named Mark Pratt was booking Liberty lunch and the continental club at the time. Mm -hmm. And we approached him when the Ritz fell out from under us about doing Liberty lunch. He didn't know anything about punk rock. And he said, "Ah, Liberty lunch. That's a pretty big room. Let's put you in the continental club. And he gave us a Thursday night and we put like 400 people in the continental club. And he went, Oh, maybe Liberty lunch. And then, and he and I began this relationship where anybody come into town, like what size is the band? let's where Where can we put them? You know, that's why trouble played Liberty lunch. And that's why yeah. anything that was coming through during that little period in 83, 84, you know, we were kind of working together and eventually he just sort of took it over and everybody called him, which was great. But, but yeah, but you just, know, it's like, you know, what, you know,
1: yeah. Let's I see to, how many people
2: oh, we can get. I know? wanted to
1: bring, I wanted to bring that up and just talk about it a little bit and I'll, I'll never forget what you did for like metal kids around here. You not being a metal guy yourself and it really is important that people know that you were kind of like a, you were championing all of this. I mean, like your lyrics and Fun, Fun, Fun. It's immediate. It's exactly what's happening. And you were championing all of this fun stuff, these kids that were a little bit younger than you, and you saw something in them and you gave them a chance. And and those little kids were me and my 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 heavy metal dude buddies and you you made it happen i mean i got to open for legendary bands because of you and it's appreciated
2: i remember you telling me that one time i was like do you realize that you brought slayer here for the first time and you let me open for them when i was 17 and i'm like no i forgot well i don't
1: i don't think i was 17 but the story sounds good that way here's here's one more thing and then we'll move on because we can be here for hours um I was down on the drag. The drag is campus. It's the the main strip. It's Guadalupe Street. It's downtown, close to down, just north of downtown Austin, Texas. It's 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 world famous as well, um, for many many reasons. And uh, I think I was coming out of Inner Sanctum or another uh, record exchange. Yeah, I'm coming out of Record Exchange, and I'm and I'm tooling down the street. And it's broad daylight, and I see off in the distance, I see this guy on a 10-speed bicycle with a knapsack pulling out posters and hanging them up on on uh, telephone poles. You were using duct tape, or you had – I don't think you had okay. the spray glue. I no. don't know if you had the spray glue. Just duct tape or something. Yeah,
2: mostly masking tape, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what he's hanging up. And I get a little closer, and I get a little closer – The moral of the story. It was you, Chris. And you know, whose posters you were hanging up? Not a clue. Mine. (laughs) But
2: I knew how, you know, and I was still showing everybody, you know I mean? Like I'm the oldest in my family and my wife has this thing. Like she says, I have to be careful what I say out loud around you because once you hear it and it's in your head, you just go do stuff. It doesn't occur to you not to do stuff. And that's sort of the story of my life. I mean, that's, I mean, Christ, I moved to Los Angeles at a time when all the boys were dressing like girls, planning on starting a rock band looking like me. And, you know, nobody in LA wanted to play with me, but it didn't occur to me that I wasn't going to succeed. And, you know, I did.
3: Yes.
0: That's a perfect segue because I wanted to get to um, I, we need to talk about Junkyard and, and especially me being a big fan. So, and you've told me some of these stories in the past, and Jason's probably aware of a lot of it as well. But for our listeners, Um, tell us how you and David Roach basically were based in Austin and the two of you just decided to pack up, go to LA and try to make it. Is that right?
2: Not really. Uh, we, I had, I went out to LA with poison 13 and I stayed after the band went back to Texas. I stayed with this girl and I ended up going to this party in the basement of this place called the Malaga castle, which is like the chili peppers live there. And a bunch of my punk rock friends live there. And I saw Todd Muscat and Pat Mazingo had a new band. Their punk band had transformed into a glam band called Shanghai. And I had already discovered the Hanoi Rocks records and was like completely into Hanoi Rocks, 85, probably. Mm. And I went and saw them play at this party. And the, the last band on the show was Guns N' Roses playing in this basement in front of about 30 people. And, and I was wanting to play more and more rock and roll with Poison 13. The punk scene had gotten tedious And suddenly I realized, oh my God, there's a rock scene out here. So I went home and packed my crap up and got organized and went out there by myself and spent about six months trying to find people to play with and not having any real success. No, nobody wanted to play with the fat guy from Texas. How's that guy ever going to get a record deal?
1: And their uh, loss.
2: Before (laughs) during poison 13, David had a band called the Strapados and they, they used to open for us a bunch. And I didn't really know David, like the girl that hands off is written about lived in the same clothing optional apartment complex as my girlfriend for a while. And like, I would come over and see all of his stuff in the yard. And then two weeks later, he'd come over and see all my stuff in the yard. And You know, it was a little chaotic, but, but uh, we didn't didn't really know each other, but I heard somehow, I heard that he was going to come out to LA and I got it in my head I have to track this guy down. So I spent about a week calling people and trying to get his phone number. And I called him and said, look, you're coming out here. When you get here, you and I need to try and start a band. And he went, "Okay," And and then, you know, they came when he came out, he brought Johnny Hell and the guitar player from the Strapados and the guitar player's wife. A guy named Max Gottlieb and, and his wife and they all came and they stayed at my loft for a couple of nights and I got kicked out for letting them stay there. And we moved into town and got Texas West and, uh and started putting the band together. But uh wow. you know, that's yeah, it, it happened because I couldn't find anybody that wanted to play with me. And so I tracked them down and said, when you get here, it's you and me.
1: So, so how did that, you- that kind of hurts my brain that you, you, you said you didn't really know him. You didn't really know David Roach when you were in Austin.
2: Like uh, we, I mean, as casual acquaintances, but we didn't run oh, in the same right. circles okay. at all. Oh, yeah, I mean, okay. it wasn't, oh, he wasn't right. a stranger. You know, our bands no, had played no. together and stuff, sure. but we didn't okay. hang out. We hadn't really hung out much.
1: Yeah, you guys you had. You guys hadn't been in a band prior. You no, guys, it was a f- like no four, or age, yeah. four or five year age, four five year age difference. Yeah. You know, okay. we just we were running in different circles. You know, I don't think I ever knew that. I thought I knew everything I about you, Chris. I, I totally yeah,
0: set up the question yeah. all wrong because okay. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, that's good. Well, yeah. So no, why we're here,
0: Dave? Exactly. Yeah. For for us to learn something and for our listeners to learn That's something. That's right. It's educational.
2: You know, I had, and I had spent those six months writing most of the songs on the first record. Wow. And by myself in my loft. And uh and then they come out and you know, and I start writing with David and uh and you know, we start playing around and, and very quickly started finding traction. Like I was fully planning on having to be a band for a few years while this glam thing ran its course. And, you know, within about nine months of starting to play, we, we got a deal.
0: Yeah. Didn't you guys get a deal before you had enough material for your first record?
2: Oh yeah. We did like, we, uh, you know, everybody in the band was nice guys and we put on a, we had come up out of punk rock. So our energy level was higher than most of the other bands, you know? And so this woman named Dale Gloria. Hi Dale. We love you. Um, Dale and her partner, Michael Stewart ran this club called the screen
3: mm.
2: and, uh, Monday nights in Hollywood and Friday and Saturday nights at this giant place downtown. And, uh, they wanted to manage us. So we, went, okay. And, uh, they put us on a bill. The first band on the bill was green river from Seattle who mm. broke up on their way home, arguing, and became eventually Mud Honey and, and Pearl Jam. Right. Um, and then we were in the middle. It's all your they, fault. And Jane's Addiction was headlined. It's actually Jane's Addiction's fault because oh, half okay. the band wanted to be more professional <laughs> and more rock like Jane's and the other half wanted to be more punk rock. And so they split wow. up over that and, and did exactly that.
3: Wow. You know? Yeah, they sure <laughs> did. Actual
2: musical differences, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but it was right when everybody, every label in town was trying to sign Jane's. Mm-hmm. And so they saw us and and uh, a guy from, from Electra came backstage and said, you guys are phenomenal. I would love to sign you. Can you give me your promo kit? And we said, we don't have one. We don't have a demo. We don't have anything. And he said, well, soon." and Electra was one of my top choice labels. And uh, he says, as soon as you get something, you have to bring it to me. I went, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And like 10 minutes later, this woman comes backstage from Geffen and says, you know, I love you guys. I would love to work with you. Can you give me your press kit? We, can you give me your demos? I mean, we don't have a demo. She said, here's my card. Call me Monday. We'll give you three grand to make a demo. And so we signed with Gavin.
1: Mm-hmm. Because they <laughs> gave you money right away. Right. Because
2: right. Yeah. They, they wanted to, they were willing to pay. for it. And, you know, they gave us I think they gave us five grand to do three songs. And we spent three grand on six songs and gave them the rest of the money back. And they signed us right away.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, so before, before we move on to the debut album, I, I want to back up just a bit and tell me how, how did you meet uh, Brian Baker?
2: I knew Brian from minor threat. Like I knew all the guys in the band from their punk bands. Right. You know, I knew Pat from D cry coming through Austin and, yeah. and, and, and when the band started, it was, it was Johnny hell and max and, and me and David and a variety of bass players. Uh, Tony Alba was our first bass player. Wow. And then Tony got busy, you know, resurrecting his company with somebody and, and he dropped out and we had a, we ended up with clay. Um, and, uh, but I knew Brian from, from having done a bunch of shows with minor threat, both in Texas and on the East coast. And like, really like max was a great guy but not a great guitar player and i was also not a great guitar player i was planning on being the rhythm guitar player and having a hotshot lead guitar player and i was having to do more of the solo work and whatever And then when when we we got signed and we did a a showcase for tom worman and worman came up after the showcase and went man i'm i would love to produce your record that guy can't play on it mm. and uh wow yeah we went ah oh, and so you know we got together and talked about it and knew that we were going to have to, we could we couldn't carry him. And yeah. so, yeah. So uh, we made the hard call and, and, and let Max go. And we were just beginning to, we had put an ad in whatever the paper was, you know, and we were just beginning to field some phone calls. And I walked from my girlfriend's apartment around the block to the seven 11 in my neighborhood. And I walked in the front door and there's Brian. And he's grown his hair out. And I'm this going, is,
1: and this is in, in LA, in
2: LA. Okay. Yeah. Make and sure. I'm going, dude, what are you doing here? He's going, Oh, I moved out of here. You know, I want to put a band together. I was going like, what kind of band? Yeah. <laughs> said, want be, you want to be in a rock band? Yeah. And he's going, he's going, you started a rock band. He's going, what are you doing right now? And he walked back over to my girlfriend's apartment and I played him the demos we had done. And he said, yeah, I'm in. And wow. That that. And wow. There's your lead guitar player.
0: So yeah. how did the name Junkyard come about? Because it's one of the best rock band names in the history Very of rock awesome. band names. Yeah.
2: It well, honestly, it came, it was the name of one of my all-time favorite records by the birthday party. Mm. They have a record called Junkyard. And uh mm. and at, and when I'm when I was thinking, well, actually, I wanted to name the band Crack, but that was before <laughs> there was the drug, right? <laughs> Just because I liked the sound of it.
3: Yeah, you know, right. that
2: whole onomatopoeia thing. It sounds like a great rock band name. But before I could name a band that crack happened. And so <laughs> that was no longer a good name. <laughs> I
1: think I think David told us the birthday party uh, story about. The
2: yeah. And, and, and it's like, you know, I have rules about band names. Like it has to be easy to pronounce when you see it written. It has to be easy to spell when you hear it spoken. And uh, it either needs to tell you everything or nothing. And Junkyard is one of those names that does both.
3: Yes, like yes. when
2: you see the name, it could be anything. But when you see the name and the logo and the other stuff that we put with it, you go, okay, trashy rock and roll. Yes. And, uh, you know, and, and so it was just, yeah, it was, I lifted it from Nick Cave, but uh, but it was perfect for what I wanted to do musically. So.
0: Absolutely. So you told me a story also. Uh, you get signed to Geffen. Um, you're getting ready to put out the first record. and um the your the album cover of your first album is iconic and you told me that it was basically just a happy accident you basically pulled uh you pulled something out of a trash can and said i don't know what you guys are thinking this is the album cover right here is
2: basically like we were battling you know i've been every band i was in especially big boys like we were all really involved with the artwork. We would trade, like you do the front cover this time, I'll do the back cover and he'll do the insert. And next time he'll do the front cover and you'll do the back cover and I'll do the insert. And like every record we traded, who did what, we were all involved in, in the creation and the brand and, and all the rest of it. And so like turning it over to, you know, I thought, well, these guys are professionals, you know, and and surely they'll be better than me. And then, I, then they start, you know, Sending us to photo shoots in junkyards. I'm going. Are you kidding me? I'm not standing in a trash pile. This is stupid. <laughs> but they sent us to Tijuana to take pictures, which was a terrible idea. <laughs>
3: but uh, yeah,
2: <laughs> I remember parts of it, and nobody got arrested, so it, look, it was a well, good trip overall. Success. But, uh, yes. <laughs> but, like when the band started, we needed a look, right? And, like, and and we're not the kind of guys who can put on silly outfits. Well, it's just not who we are. So basically what we did is we looked at what do we all wear normally anyway? And where is there an overlap? And let's just focus on the area that overlaps. So we'd look like we belong together. And I was working for a t-shirt printing guy and I designed both the original junkyard, junkyard, junkyard logo in my attempt to recreate the cover of humble pie rock and the Fillmore. And, uh, and then I created that spade logo, which was a riff on this motorhead poster that a friend of mine had done for a motorhead show in LA. And, uh, and I, basically I silk screened the spade logo onto some cloth. And then I went to the store and bought a bunch of jean jackets and sewed it on and gave everybody their jacket. The original jackets had everybody's names on them at the bottom. And, uh, and suddenly we're running around looking like a biker gang in a town where everybody's looking like girls. And, uh, and so we're down in Tijuana and we're taking all these pictures and we're having a good time, but they've all the pictures, like they've got these soft focusy, like it's just awful. And and Mm. all of their ideas are just awful. And we're literally in the art department at Geffen. And I look over in the trash can and there's all these big 11 by 17 sort of grainy color prints. I'm going, what are those? They're going, Oh, nothing. Those are outtakes or whatever. They're not good pictures. And I start pulling through them and the, somewhere in the middle of the pile was that front cover photo. And I'm looking at it and it's blurry and it's out of focus. And it looks like fucking Altamont, <laughs> you know, it looks like there's violence behind this somehow. Like, and I went, Oh dude, this is the cover. And like, they went, what are you talking about? Went, no, no, this is the, and I had to fight them for it. And we had to fight them for it, but it was, it was the right call. I'm wow. glad
0: you won that battle because yeah. that album cover, uh, just like your name, you know. I've said it a hundred times. Jason's probably sick of me saying it, but I—you can never undervalue uh, the a great band name, or a great album cover, or a great looking logo. Because you, even if you take it home and decide you don't like it, guess what? You took it home, <laughs> yeah. and. You know what I mean? So Junkyard's the perfect name. That album cover, especially that that debut album cover, is iconic. And the fact that you pulled it out of a trash can makes it even
1: cooler. I was going to say, that's (laughs) that's a happy accident. And if you want to find your album cover, Art, don't take yourself so fucking serious. Just look in the trash can. (laughs) You
2: know, it it helps to have a, a good eye you know like I'm, well, I'm able to visualize things that other people can't quite see but it's like yeah as soon as i saw that picture and there were a couple of others but they were like in focus and they were a little bit but like just the the nature of that picture has there's an energy to it i'm going like oh this is this is too perfect
0: was was the blue tint already in place or was that added
2: yeah well no yeah it was like on the i've got some other prints from that photo shoot still sitting around that I pulled out of the trash and kept that day and they've all got this kind of blue cast to them and I remember going back and going I wanted to have this you know and I don't mm-hmm. know like it, it was from a, a shitty office color printer like a laser printer and and so when they went to reproduce I mean I think the blue was probably their color photos but there was a way to shift it so it didn't look just quite so photoy and yeah yeah once, well, that- once they signed on they got it but but yeah. in the beginning it was like it, 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 it's like making an, an awesome new type of soup and then wrapping it in the ugliest label possible you don't put our pictures on the cover right <laughs> like, well, our faces <laughs> don't
1: sell records i like the, the, my favorite part of the story and it's and it's so very true is they like well well, you know, oh, Geffen, they, yeah, they have an awesome art department. I'll just put all my trust in them. They know. They're the professionals. They got this. And, and then every time I did
2: that, it screwed me. And, and every then everything, time.
1: yeah, everything you see is terrible. A uh, similar story with the toys. Management was like, oh, this is the best in Los Angeles. These are the best in the business. They do everybody's stuff. And they're sending me sketches by facts because it's, you know, the dark ages. Yeah. And I'm looking at these sketches of where, where we were taking it, and everyone knows where we took it. But, and it was fucking awful it looked like a third grader drew it and i was like what it my manager who i've just signed away my fucking life to is telling me this, this is, is okay shit? yeah it's yeah. no way and then you end up calling one of your buddies who's living in a trash can somewhere and he doodles something out and it's fucking iconic yeah, yeah
2: yeah i mean you know the only other time i didn't fight for what felt right was the simple man video and you know we got the guy who had done everybody else's power ballad video and it was like it never felt right the whole time we were doing it 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 never it just wasn't and it didn't get played you know what was
0: your what was your vision for the video i
2: didn't i didn't by the time we got there it was like it was too late to have one you know it was like right. i hadn't really thought like the, i you know i wasn't a filmmaker i went to film school but like the first video was like we just hired this insane french canadian dude um who uh we had a very small budget for the Hollywood video, like 30 grand. And uh, he said, I'm not going to be able to, I'm only going to be able to give you a couple of days notice when we're going to shoot. It's going to be on a Sunday. And we went, okay, I don't know, whatever. And then he he called us on a, called us on a Wednesday and said, we're shooting this Sunday, you know, be at this address at 6.00 AM. Went, Okay. And what we didn't know is that he had just signed a deal to shoot a really expensive video. And I want to say it was for Tora Tora, but I'm not positive. Mm. Somebody who had 200 grand to spend on a video and he bought all of this film stock and rented all this camera gear and all the rest of this stuff. And he shot it on a Friday and a Saturday, knowing that he was going to have to pay rent through the weekend on all the gear. And so he shot everything he needed to with them on Friday and Saturday. And when you, we used all the gear they paid for to shoot ours on Sunday, we used their <laughs> film stock. We wow. used their, their, steady cams we use their dollies we use their crane we use all of their gear that they paid for they probably don't know that
1: hi guys Um, (laughs) how did you how did you get the the crazy french canadian to agree to i mean that's like you know hey i'll take your peanuts you know i've got big money here you know how how did that
2: well you know we had we had meetings with a couple of three different directors and he walked in and was just like spinning you know, oh, and he, shit.
1: Okay. you know, he was
2: he was he was young
3: right?
2: and he hadn't done a ton of stuff, which is probably why he wanted to do it. But also, like his energy was so good. Mm. Like, you know, his idea was we're going to shoot it in an abandoned mansion and we're going to trash the place and it's going to be awesome. And like and we were just winging it. Like, you know, there's a scene in the video where I'm sitting in a chair playing a solo and this girl in a bikini walks by. The girl in a bikini was our makeup artist. We convinced her to go home, get a bikini and come back and parade past me in the video because we didn't have any money. That was Heidi Richmond. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like we didn't have any money for miles. So we talked Heidi into doing it. And it's like, you know, the whole thing, like we were. We did. The only reason we were still conscious we were drinking so much was because of all the speed we were doing. You know, and there are scenes in the video where David's literally passed out and we're still shooting.
3: You
0: know? <laughs> Whose car are you driving in the beginning of that video? That,
2: like we borrowed that car and painted flames on the front of it, and ran it into another car. <laughs>
1: oh, no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like we didn't damage it, but like yeah, yeah, we borrowed it and painted the flames on and ran it into the, another car. And then like,
1: here's your car back. Oh, your car back. Yeah, yeah. The flames? They'll wipe off. <laughs> so See yeah. Later.
2: It's probably temper paint or something. I don't know, but but yeah, that was the that whole video was totally. It was totally us.
1: Wow. Yeah. You know.
2: And then we then we're on this. Like the only cool thing about the uh Simple Man video was. Right over the hill in one direction were the Quonset huts where they shot all the exterior stuff for Gomer Pile USMC, wow. and right over the hill the other way was Spawn Ranch. So that was cool. Mm. We, I kept <laughs> disappearing from the shoot to go check out Spawn Ranch and checking up, uh, disappearing over the hill to check out the Gomer Pile set. But
1: wow, you got you got uh, you got Private Pile <laughs> and and uh, yeah, Charlie Ranch. Manson. Uh, <laughs>
2: Yeah. <laughs> a trailer full of models who wouldn't even speak to anybody in the band. Mm, right. <laughs> They're a little freaked out by us.
1: Yeah. Well so that's per that's perfect. They should be yeah. scared of you guys.
2: Yeah, yeah. Let's
1: you know, jump
0: yeah. to the next album. Uh again, this is a story you told me, but for the benefit of our listeners, I've always loved the song Slippin' Away on the second junkyard record, Sixes, Sevens, and Nines. And you co-wrote it with Steve Earle. Um, who, of course, went on to do many amazing things. Um, But tell me the story about how you got Steve Earle involved in writing a Junkyard song, because this is great.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, we were in the studio making the first record, and our our person was a woman named Teresa Ansonat. And uh, Teresa had just started dating Steve. This is just before uh, Copperhead Road came out. And so she shows up at the studio with Steve in tow and we go out to dinner. We take a break and we go out to dinner and Teresa's sitting at one end of the table with Tom Worman and Dwayne, the engineer, and Steve and I are at the other end and we don't really, we don't know each other, but we start talking and I find out he's from San Antonio and he knows the Sexton's and Towns and guy and, you know, and, and so we're making a connection, but he's just this guy, you know, I don't know. He's had all these, hits on country radio for other people. And he's had all these hits on country radio on his own records. And I don't know anything about that. He's just this guy. And, uh, and then he copperhead comes out and the songs a hit and he comes through and he plays the palace, but we just sold out the palace. So whatever, he's just this guy. And, you know, he's now he's married to my a r person. And, and, uh, and we just get to be friends. He's around LA some and we're getting to be friends with each other. And I don't know his story. I don't know who, I don't really understand who he is. And, uh, and then, you know, Geffen is pushing me to do some co-writes. You know, I'm, I'm having a hard time writing the record. I've never written like this before. And it, it I understand why second records tend to suck. Because like on the first record, it's not that you had your whole life to write it. It's that when you're writing organically, for every 10 loose ideas you have for songs, only like two or three of them get turned into actual songs. And only like of all the, so if it's, three out of 10 get turned into songs. Then once you've got, 10 songs only t- one or two of them are any good
1: yeah and- I, I i i tell people that all the time it's like you have to write lyrics to these loose ideas that are actually inspirational right all and the other a- seven eight nine that kind of didn't really tickle your fancy you you have to still have to write words to the ones that are okay well and that's the thing so-
2: like on a second record or a third record or whatever you finish every idea you start and like yeah. you It's why like you write 30 freaking songs and there's only three good ones because that's ah. the right number of good ones yeah. you know but you wouldn't have bothered to, so it's really it's sort of soul-crushing as a writer and they are pushing me to do co-writes and like i spent a few days drinking beer and hanging out with steve cropper from booker t and the mgs we didn't write anything but we, i made him tell me a lot of great stories awesome and uh <laughs> and i tried to write with rod argent and i tried to write with some other people and you know but, but mm. i was like what, what about steve you know and and was so they
1: this said, was it i'm sorry we'll get to steve real real quick were you writing for the guys in easy at that point at that moment or was that later
2: It was it was the same time,
1: same time. That's what I thought. I wanted to throw that in there.
2: I had also started. Collaborating with some people. I'm really good at taking a good idea and arranging it into a good song. Mm. I, I have a very strong sort of pop sensibility, and I think Guns N' Roses is a pop band. You know, they're a hard rock band, but the songs are incredibly tightly arranged. And that's what yeah. pop music is. And so, and I'm real good at that. Like working with Tom Worman, you know, Tom Worman comes in to most bands have made a record or two. And then Worman comes in and they make their very best record because he's really good at taking your good idea and making it a great song. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like I love the first Motley Crue record, but the songs are so much better on Shout at the Devil. You know, the ideas are much more fleshed out and much more direct and, and powerful. Yeah. You know, a lot of great ideas in the first record, a lot of great songs in the second record. And that's Worman. And yeah, when Worman was working with the record... Hard-
1: First record seems to be riff and then break and drum fill and next section and then right. break and then drum fill. And then next sec- and next song, same arrangement as that right. because they're still learning their craft. I think. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And Werman's real good at like going in and, t- and leaving parts out and making the song simpler. And like when he worked with us, he was going like, this is the first time I've ever worked with a band where I would tell him, maybe we should do it four times instead of two. Cause your songs are so tight. Maybe we should stretch them out a little bit mm-hmm. and like they, And he was making me write bridges because I had a tendency to start another song if I came up with a good third part mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and so I would I did some of that mm-hmm. like and the, the stuff that David and I did with EZO was like they sent us to New York for the same thing see if they could get yeah yeah I the,
1: I, I've never asked you about the EZO record we're talking about uh, fire fire record I believe yeah. it to be the second uh, domestic release by a Japanese band EZO you went to New York and it was Geffen that flew you guys out there.
2: Yeah, they they flew the two of us out and we'd been put us up for five or six days and you know we'd go out and party all night and then we'd meet them at their office the next day and work on songs
1: with with the guys in Ezo like the full band or
2: yeah like their their drummer was the only one who spoke any English wow. And, so did, uh, they, did any of those songs make their album? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. One or two two of them, I think. I think two, yeah. I, I never mean, knew
1: this. I think wow. Jamie St. James uh, from Black and Blue wrote a song for that record he, with them as well.
2: And and I kind of think he was the translator.
1: Oh, I wow. I, I oh, can't that, remember that for made, sure. I, that wouldn't but, put, that. I wouldn't put it past Jamie St. James. I can't David. remember,
2: but uh, there was, but they had a translator there who is we were going back and forth through a translator and we go, what, you know, do you have any riff ideas? And, and they'd show us some riff ideas and we'd sort of work on that a little bit. And like, what would you like the song to be about? And they would tell us. And then David and I would write some words and they would make suggestions and, but all through a translator.
0: Are you credited on that album? Oh yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Wow, this is all I, news to me. I have you know? the
1: record just because my buddy Chris and Dave are on. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I yeah. didn't know Be- that. Because and Fire, like- Fire is not their greatest moment. Sorry, Chris. That's uh, okay. It's it's the record before that that really got me into Ezo, and Gene yeah. Simmons produced that, and Gene probably even helped him write some songs. I mean, all the songs are about him anyway. Destroyer is a song on there. Yeah. You know, they have a <laughs> they were, they were, Destroyer. Yeah.
2: And I had seen them on Night Flight playing that MZA, oh. whatever that. No, so that's rock Loudness. And roll, rock and Roll that's, Crazy. That's, oh, that's Loudness. loudness. That's that loudness. loudness. Different band. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, but they were great guys. They had been in New York for a year, and they never oh. went out to see music, and they never really were part of the scene. And, like, the drummer went out a little bit. But, like, we would go out, you know, we're on Def- Geffen's Dime. We'd go out and, you know— get hammered and see all these great bands and, you know, hang out and party with raging slab and, and, uh, and the rest of the guys in New York and, and, uh, wow and then drag our asses into the, you know, sleep for four or five hours and drag our asses in. The first hour would be spent telling them what we did last night. You know?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> That's well, way more probably, entertaining than any song we're going to come up with. Living, living
1: vicariously. Okay. Well, we yeah. got, we went out last night, did some research. So now we're ready to write <laughs> some songs with you guys. You know, Yeah. Well, what did they, you they do? Were, oh, here's what we did.
2: Yeah. They were great guys. And we had a great time. Like monster was the most, players.
1: They could play their asses off. Yeah.
2: And play that, that was like was the big. most fun I ever had in new york because every time i'd ever been there i had been completely broke and so oh, being yeah. in new york on a on a expense account was awesome
0: oh Man. i'm sure so bring yeah. us back to steve earl so you're, you're you're back you're uh
2: so I, I i asked steve if he'd be interested in writing and he said sure so david and i geffen flew me and dave out to to nashville and we hung out with steve for three or four days and wrote a couple of songs together and slipping away is the one that ended up on the record
0: yeah th- were you house sitting for him when he went
2: on tour or something yeah, that was or? that was later later okay yeah that was later like we you know we 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 wrote slipping away and we wrote another song that just it, i ended up playing it in gatesville it was a little bit more that flavor than junkyard but uh yeah but uh well i moved we back and i didn't think too much else about it and then he lives moves out to la and is splitting up with Teresa, and i'm broken up with my girlfriend at the time so i move in with him when we finish six of sevens and nines like you know, I, I didn't have anywhere to live. I was living in one of those Oakmont apartments out in the valley near the studio, and he was getting ready to go on tour, so I moved in with him. and Then I house sat for a month and a half while he was in Australia, New Zealand, and somewhere else, Japan or something. And, and wow. over, over the course of that little house sitting adventure, I re uh, you know some of the people who called the house looking for him and stuff was the like, one. Well, who am I living with? <laughs> like, <laughs> I suddenly realized that like a lot of people knew who Steve was.
1: Kind of a big deal. you? Realize. Yeah, it was a much yeah.
2: bigger deal. Like, you know, it was pre-internet. How, how am I supposed to know? He didn't tell me.
1: Yeah. Like, you yeah.
0: know. Well, I, I love that song. I I, I think it's a, it's for me, it's one of my favorite tracks on, on the sixes, sevens, and nine. And
2: I learned a ton from hanging out with Steve just as friends during that era too. Like, at, you know, after sixes, sevens, and nine was done. Cause like. We both come from Texas and that that gives us a certain common language and sensibility. But like I came up out of the punk scene, which is all inspiration. You're just vomited out and you're done. And if you, if you look like you're spending too much time working on it, that's like, what's my, what's the matter with you? What are you lame? You know, and Steve comes up out of a singer songwriter And out of a Nashville model where he was the guy who first explained to me that there's two parts of songwriting, there's inspiration and craft. And the inspiration is uniquely yours and you should protect it at all costs. But the craft is something you can get better at and that you can take input on. And like I had never, that had never occurred to me. And I never really thought much about craft. And like you were like, Jason, like you were saying, the first Motley Crue record, there's no craft because all the songs is just same arrangement, same arrangement, same arrangement, because they don't have any of that. Yet.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
2: And uh, and so work. So after hanging out with Steve, I start paying more attention to how songs are constructed and going, like, oh, look, they did this, you know, and I'm a big fan of the ACDC simple songs and complicated arrangements. Like every time they change parts, they do it a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a big fan of that. But but, uh, but yeah, hanging out with Steve was a you know, it's not like a masterclass in, in, in thinking about songwriting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like,
2: dude. We were doing a lot of, it's not a secret. We were both completely out of our minds on drugs at the time. And like we had been up for two or three days and we're getting ready to crash. And he's going, help me set up this recorder. I want to record this song I wrote. And so we set up the mics and we set up the little dat recorder and he plays this song called cocaine cannot kill my Pain," And it's like the scariest most powerful thing i've heard in years i still have that recording from that day
1: wow
2: and i go like dude when did you write that it's going oh just over the last couple of days i'm just going i've been with you pretty much 24 7 for three days there hasn't been a guitar out of a case he's going oh, i just thought about it <laughs> and then he picked up a guitar and he played it for the very first time in a finished arrangement perfect and it's better than any song i'll ever write and i'm going like, and now I know what it felt like to be Salieri in the court of Mozart. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm good, but I'm never going to be that.
1: Wow! You know, I was like, Son of a wow. bitch! That's you know, it's so
0: some- dark
2: and it's so powerful. And he thought about it for three days. I'm like, son of a bitch!
1: You know? Wow! Some, some, gotta, cir- some circles that's just called Jedi. Yeah, and
2: it's
0: just I, like just. A I gay. gotta ask you also about the uh, the junkyard trading cards. Now, some some people, some listeners might remember these. I remember having them when I was a kid. It was basically the rock and roll equivalent of baseball cards or football cards. I think you bought a pack and you got a stick of gum and five cards and um, I remember having the Junkyard cards and I remember, I think Poison was another one of the bands and I, I can't remember the other bands. It wasn't Kiss cause Kiss was, had their own exclusive line, but this was sort of some company came to you guys and well, a couple of other bands. How did that arrangement come about? Cause you're the only friend of mine that has his own trading card.
2: <laughs> <laughs> How that happened was there were, two or three really big merch companies that were doing everybody's merch when you were on tour one of them was called brockham and we had signed a merch deal with brockham they did lots of bands white snake and poison and all kinds of people and brockham decided to release trading cards of all their endorsee artists and so that's all the all the bands that were on the trading cards were bands that were signed to brockham for a merch deal so that's that's why the band like you know there wasn't any mysterious bit of like well why did they get picked and not them it's like no no was, we we were all already had a deal with the merch company that released Rock the album.
1: deal i had yeah. mm, i had stacks of those things that i just inherited somehow the but i mean exodus yeah uh like you said white snake but uh bon jovi and i believe that there was a kiss I believe that there was a KISS. Yeah, KISS had
0: their own cards, but KISS, I think that was part of their exclusive merchandising. This was more like...
1: No, this was... I think KISS was in there, but it was the bad... It was just bad KISS. It was like, you know, Mark St. John, you know, there's no, there's no Kabuki makeup.
2: Yeah. You know, but that's how, that's how it came about was Brockham did it. It's still, it's still funny as hell, you know? I Uh,
0: think it's cool, man. I think it's really cool. And then, so if you have the, if you've seen the cards, you know, you get a picture of the guy, each guy in the band has, you know, their photo on the front of the card and then you flip it over and there's like little facts about each guy and stuff like that. So it's
1: like a faster pussycat. Uh, it's all coming Cinderella. Yeah, well, uh, everybody was on Brockham, yeah. You know, yeah.
0: I just remember having the junkyard ones. Well, and, you, uh, they
1: were the coolest ones, so you didn't need. Yeah, because you
0: were definitely sort of the out of place band. Everybody else was like yeah, you yeah. were saying earlier, kind of, kind of yeah. pretty. Well, weak- I mean, weak.
1: we were we were the out of place band. Period.
2: You know, it's like <laughs> there was a handful of bands like us that were real rock bands. Like it was, it was bands like the hangman who were a phenomenal band, but Mm -hmm. they weren't really a hard rock band. You know, they didn't really like, they were never going to be on a bill with those other bands. And sometimes we were, Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have much in common musically or style wise with all the hair metal stuff, but we were a real legit straight up hard rock band. And, uh, you know, there was nothing underground or garagey or whatever, you know, and there was a handful of us around the country, you know, uh, like I said, raging slab circus and circus of uh, power. Circus of power was the one yeah. I was trying to think of when I said raging slab. Yeah, and but especially circus of power. They were sort of our, like our New York brothers.
3: Yeah, you know, because
2: yeah. they were they were some rough trade just like us. But they were a great, a fucking great band.
1: Yes, uh, Rhino but Rhino Bucket maybe Bucket L. A.
2: Yeah. Rhino bucket came, came in like the second wave of that. And, and little Caesar and, you know, yeah. they were a little mm-hmm. more clean cut for all their biker image. They were a little more clean cut. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't, they weren't as some of us were actually rough guys and some of us just looked like rough guys.
3: Right. You know, that, not, yeah, and,
2: yeah. And, and little Caesar a great band. I, I love Ron dearly, but you know,
3: I feel they got, like there
1: was, I feel like there was a few other bands in, in, you know, Hollywood in Los Angeles County rather. And, and, that but i can't think of them right now but there there were i think that you know I, I mean dare i say you guys were starting a trend on, of your own without trying to start a trend i like and i've this, heard
2: that from some famous you know some bands that were way more successful than us about going like dude you guys showed up and we all felt like pussies that's and right six months six months later every band was wearing every band was street rock
1: well you said it like an hour ago yeah. on the clock you said it like an hour ago you guys were you know the jackets with you said the original junkyard you know gear had had y'all's. Yeah. Names on the back. You guys are walking around wearing these denim jackets, all tattered and torn, uh, around everyone else looking like girls. I bet the guy that spruced his hair up and wore let red lipstick and his mom's boots that night walks up to you and was like, "Oh, don't I feel like a tool?"
2: It's funny. Like later, after I after Junkyard was going, I was having a conversation with a bunch of guys. Um, a couple of guys from a band called the Joneses. And, and I want to say that Duff was there. I can't remember, but like, they were all saying like, when I first got to LA, like I'm going to all the rock shows, but I'm greasing my hair back cause it's growing out. It's only about, you know, three or four inches long. And I'm greasing it out while it grows back and I'm wearing all black and engineer boots and a leather jacket and all this. And everybody else is glam and yeah. like, and nobody knew who I was but there seemed to be guys in bands that knew who I was because I knew them from their punk bands. And Mm -hmm. for the first six or eight months I was out there, one of the guys told me they just called me the scariest man in Hollywood because they were certain I was just going to kick all their asses. You know? And like, I was like, I just felt left out really, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, I was never cool enough for all that fancy business. And they were go like, yeah, that guy's too cool for us. You just described,
1: like, you just almost described like a scene out of velvet gold mine or something.
3: Yeah. Some you know, kind and, of
1: weird, you know, dichotomy, some kind of wall, invisible wall, but you're still rubbing elbows with these people that you're cool yeah. with and you go to see their bands playing and everything, but they're afraid of you. It's, it's pretty.
2: You know, it's like, and I, I, you know, I made friends with with Duff and and Met Slash early on when I, before there was a junkyard, you know, and then I'd go see them play and they'd be saying hi and everybody else was like, how do you, how do you, The only guy that knows him is in the band, you know, I was like, who is this guy? So, but I knew a lot of people because a lot of the punk rockers had migrated over to the early rock scene. There were other bands similar to us. None of them ever did anything really. Yeah. You know, there was a phenomenal band called dirty dogs. It's a buddy of mine, Mickey McMahon's band a great guitar, player. he was almost in junkyard before, but Brian got the spot, but like dirty dogs were amazing songs, amazing band, but they were just a little too rough looking.
3: wow
0: wow that's saying a lot
2: you know yeah they were they were phenomenal we played a bunch with them you know and and the band that that pat Mazingo was in when junkyard first started he was a band called pirates of venus that was uh the singer was a a guy named rat's ass from a punk band called tales of terror and they were this great trashy rock and roll band but drugs destroyed the band before they could even really get off the ground and uh and so you know right around the time Johnny hell had to leave the band pirates of venus broke up and we just called and Pat and Todd were both in that band. And so we got, we immediately got Pat in the band. And then when clay had to go to prison, we got Todd too, you know? So we were were lucky that that other bands kept breaking up right when the guy we needed out of that band, right when we (laughs) needed him, (laughs) because kill for thrills had just broken up when we got
3: Todd. I yeah. was just
1: going to mention Kill for Thrills. I have their record, and you know, honestly, I I, I have to sorry, Todd. I actually, looked it up online to see if it was worth anything because it's a numbered, you know, it's a low numbered, almost yeah. a black and white cover. I don't know, you know. Yeah. And it's got a member of Guns and Roses in it. You know, this yeah. the second yeah. wave, I guess. You know. Right. But, so, Chris, um, they're they're when, doing their when, thing. When and just it just didn't again.
2: really go. You know, <laughs> they they never quite caught on, and and they fell apart and gilby went to do something else and
1: yeah right when yeah, we needed else. todd so, <laughs> yeah, yeah something else right Gilby went to they do something else yeah. but it wasn't gilby i don't went. think it
2: was guns N' roses i think it was right. something oh, else okay. between
1: oh the, know, right.
0: was the in a yeah. band called candy or something like that
2: i can't i don't remember the order of things i think candy was first but oh, i don't man, know what yeah, gilby was, was doing was. between kilford he may have gone straight to guns and roses i think there was a gap in there but i could be wrong you know it's I don't remember my own history, much less other
1: people's. (laughs) Well, that's what me and Dave are here to try to help you along, help you, uh, help you recall most of it, you know,
0: Speaking Uh, of your, your, your history um, you you've, you've been pretty open and honest about uh, some of your uh, demons in the past, I guess is the way to say it. And uh, we're, we're thrilled to see you happy and healthy now. And for the past 25, 30 years, whatever it is. Um, But Tell, tell us you know as much or as little as you want about uh going through that dark period and what eventually got you out of it
2: and sure you know it's i've been sober for 23 years and and but like i also was dead four times so you know it was touch and go there for a while and, and really you know i'm an addict it, it, you know it's my first drug of choice was food in grade school you know and 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 as I progressed through it for a long time, it was a lot of fun. You know, I was drinking, I was using probably more than other people, but I was still having a great time. Mm -hmm. Um, It started getting out of hand in the beginning of junkyard. I was dealing meth while we were making the first record and, uh, and uh, almost in legal trouble for that because the guy I was dealing with the DEA raided his house and I managed to get left out of that happily. But uh, Mm -hmm. just before we went on our first tour and, but you know heroin had overrun los angeles and once there was no more meth apparently there was no staying sober and everybody was strung out in the late 80s everybody and so you know heroin came into the picture and like it just you know that's not something that's very manageable but it was like it was so difficult to be me without it you know if i hadn't had heroin i would have probably killed myself but i found a way to just not exist for a portion of every day. And it was enough. But like, by the time we were making the third record, I was not in good shape and you know, I was the primary songwriter and, and, uh, looking back now, like I I really believe that had I not been strung out on heroin, if I was, if I wasn't an addict, when nevermind hit and the grunge thing exploded, we could have climbed into a van and signed a deal with metal blade and in three years been on par with motorhead because we were playing the same places and we were, we had the same sort of integrity that they had and we could have gone out there and done that, but I was in no condition to do it. And so yeah. the band ended, you know, and, uh, then I moved back to Texas thinking there wouldn't be drugs here. I was wrong. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I spent a number of years doing whatever it took to try and stop. And really what made it doable for me was just like a lot of other things in my life, a series of happy coincidences where I had a moment one day where I realized that like I can't function doing what I'm doing and I have no idea how to stop. And there has to be a way, but I don't know what it is. And later the same day I was watching uh, TV and I was watching this episode of 2020 and they're doing a feature about this guy named Buddy Arnold and jazz saxophone player. And I'm watching it's music. I watch everything about music and and then they mentioned that he had been a heroin addict for 30 years. And I thought that was a weird thing to include in this music story. But it turns out the story wasn't about music. It was about how he, at 10 years sober, he had just founded an organization fully funded by the Grammys, whose only job was to pay for musicians to go to treatment. And I went, Whoa. oh, shit, that's yeah. my spot. Hmm. So I, I wrote down their information and I called them up and it took a while to get it organized. But they paid for me to go to rehab and I've been sober ever since. They saved my life. Like I said, I had overdosed and died and been brought back by the paramedics four times in the last four months. And so, you know, without having run across that show and maybe having the thought earlier in the day that there has to be a better way and I don't know what it is. And then someone comes on TV and goes, maybe they know how what it is. And so I went and sure enough, they knew what it was. And uh, I've been doing what they taught me ever since and showing other people how to do it, too. So
1: do do
0: you feel like. you should you should mention a little bit about that because you you you've been in the recovery uh, counseling business for a number of years, uh, helping other people get through what you got through, and I I think yeah that's for about a- the last
2: eight, eight I guess a little over ten years now doing you know for a living trying to help people yeah. turn that corner mm-hmm. and and build a better life and and you know it's the place I was working for a nonprofit for the last six years that just went out of business from COVID and funding issues, but mm-hmm. But I fully expect to find myself back in that field, both because it's something I'm passionate about, and because I don't have a lot of marketable job skills besides that.
0: So, well, that's a good one. You're saving yeah, a lot of people, yeah. and yeah. you know, I've known you for 25 years, and Jason's known you even longer than that. And I'm looking at you today, and you look better than you ever have in all that period yeah. of time. I'm, so. a, I'm as
2: happy as I've ever been. I'm as healthy as I've ever been. You know, oh, yeah. I'm insanely happily married. I'm, I just started a new a new uh, music project with. Uh, Ian from the riverboat gamblers and uh, Bobby Daniel from fastball and this buddy of mine named Chris Ward playing drums. And all we're doing is old school punk rock covers.
0: Nice. And super fun.
2: Yeah. Just super fun. And uh, just wailing it out. And then, you know, probably in March, we're going to try and find a residency somewhere, you know, and eight to 10 for the, you know, for the grumpy old punks.
1: Ian (laughs) Ian is a co-worker of mine.
2: Yeah. Mm hmm.
0: So I got to also talk about the elephant in the room, and then we'll let you go because I know we're running long. Um, uh, our listeners are going to want to know, I'm sure, you know, Junkyard is back in action. They've done uh, an album. Um, they're working on a new album. They've been on tour and obviously you're not part of that and you i understand are at a different point in your life and 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 all and all that sort of thing and the idea of doing a van tour and everything i get it but from your perspective tell tell people why if if you were contacted or why you're not part of the current version of junkyard that's that's reactivated
2: well and i was when the band first got back together like i i uh not long after I got sober in about 2000, we had two albums worth of unreleased material and I found, and CD-ROMs had just been invented. So I I found a way to get all that material digitized so I could burn it onto CDs. And somebody in LA heard about it and, and contacted me about releasing it. And then they found out that I also had an entire 24 track live recording of the band from the, at our peak that no one had ever heard that we owned outright. So, they made arrangements for me to fly to LA to mix that that's shut up. We're trying to practice and, uh, and word filtered out. And somehow or another people started thinking we were going to get back together. And the super supper suckers offered us a couple of nights opening for him at the house of blues. So we decided just yeah, good it. Let's put the band back together. And, and Brian was busy with bad religion. So Tim stepped in cause him and him and Brian were buddies and, and we did that you know, we went to Japan, we went to Europe a bunch of times, we did some fly-in dates and short runs around the States, you know, from 2000 to 2010 or whatever it was. And around the same time, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago, something, whatever it was like, my health was not good. Like I was having all kinds of fallout from all the damage I had done, not expecting to live this long. And uh, I had, I was in the process of, considering stopping doing Gatesville because even playing locally was kind of becoming a drag. And, uh, and I imagine I wasn't super fun to be out on the road with plus David was still drinking too much back then and wasn't reliable as a, as a singer. And it was pissing me off and uh, how it went down. Wasn't pretty. And it rubbed me the wrong way for a while. But the simple truth is if they would have just called and told me, Hey man, you don't live in LA anymore. And we've, we've got somebody here that does, and we would like, there's no money in this. And we would like to keep doing it. Do you mind if we replace you with somebody else? I would have been happy to sign off. That's not what happened. And it created some bad blood for a while. That's all behind us now. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I'm talking to, I've talked to Tim about maybe doing some co-writing on the next record and we'll awesome. see, you know, well, like, a, lot
1: of, a lot of fans really, really enjoyed seeing you step out, uh, you know, whatever, phone footage i guess you could call it uh that surfaced from that that show we recently did together in, in december
3: yeah that
1: was uh, fun. everyone everyone was super happy to see you jump up and do a couple was, things you know yeah my my
0: my heart was warm that night i gotta say because uh, i'm a i'm a big fan of the band and i like all of you guys and uh it was so good to see you on stage in your hometown with Junkyard.
2: Yeah, you know, it, was, it was great to do. You know, Dave and I have mended fences, and the rest of the guys. You know, it it was like slipping on an old comfortable pair of pants. You know, it was like, I I remember this. You know, and yeah, and uh, I, it, you know, it might even have been you, Dave, that told me it's like as soon as I started playing went, oh yeah, that's it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> you know, like, yeah,
2: because it's. Yeah. It, I, would, I have a unique approach like Tom Worman called my playing freewheeling tightness. Uh, yeah. You can't say it's wrong. Cause I wrote the song, but it's, you know, it has its own, <laughs> it has its own pocket. So, you know, Well, we
0: were all of us here in Austin were, were treated to something special that night when you got up with junkyard and did three songs at the end of the night. And it was awesome. You know, and it was not only awesome to see you on stage and playing with the guys again, but it's sort of signaled to those of us in the audience that whatever, whatever bad blood there might've been is at least at peace for the, you no, that's know, fine. Like, and
2: I love Dave, like a brother, you know, yeah, and, and, uh, course. and, you know, I, I love the rest of the guys and like, I didn't, I don't have the energy to carry around dumb stuff and whatever may have been said. And, in and, in, you know, without thinking in the moment, like it's ancient history now. And I can't, I can't worry about yesterday. I just, I don't have the the energy to carry around baggage. It took a minute to get past, but,
3: sure
2: I, i'm yeah. happy as hell that they're still doing it i'm happy as hell i'm not in a van
1: it's a win-win for everybody yeah,
2: right you know it's it's <laughs> fine. You, you knock yourselves out you guys have a great time doing it um yeah, yeah i got it's, not, I got, I it's just, not
1: worth it's not worth having a having any kind of guilt especially no no points,
2: my, in my you that, know, that
1: being a demon you know guilt my, guilt is a demon and it's yeah, my
2: passions are elsewhere and mm-hmm. you know all's forgiven on my part and You know, it is what it is.
3: That's awesome.
2: Could it have been handled better a million years ago? We well, apparently not, but, but it's, also, but it's you know, like, that's the truth. It's like, could it have been done better? I think it was probably done the best it could be done. And it wasn't very good, but but that's okay. It's
1: fine. Yeah. It's all,
3: you know, sometimes, it's all fun, Sometimes
1: know. we just forget how to treat each other and you forget that, you know, I don't want to be a grown-up and do the right thing. Fuck you. Or guys. you type you know.
2: something into a, a Facebook messenger post in the middle of the night when you're hammered that you probably shouldn't have typed. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah had the wrong words in it not the right ones right yeah. you know whatever you know I, yeah. yeah
2: like I said even even when and there was never animosity It just had my feelings hurt for a while but even in the midst of it you can't have your feelings hurt by people you don't care about so right you know so that makes me happy that that I got to do it and that you know we've that we all got to do it and and everybody knows that everything's fine and I'm, I'm I wish them all the best and you know if, if I get to write some riffs or do some stuff music for the next record then that makes me happy too
0: yeah
1: yeah that's well, that's another win so it's like win 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 that's yeah. the new that wins right there yeah.
0: yeah well man we i i really i thank you for being so open and honest especially on those last two subjects i know they're not easy but i i yeah. i feel comfortable enough asking you and i i appreciate you uh sharing with us because um i think people get to know another side of you and and that's always
3: If
1: if people, if people listening and watching can't, can't tell, just want to say Chris is one of my, one of my heroes. So Chris, it's been awesome to have you on here.
0: Absolutely. I I feel the same. Nothing but respect for you. I love what you've done with your career. I love what you've done with your personal life. Uh, You're an inspiration on so many levels. And uh, I got a new thing
2: I'm starting now called Big Cool Life. It's just you can find me at bigcoollife.com. It's me talking about spirituality and about how to apply some actions in life so that it can be big and cool more than it isn't.
1: Yeah. I've seen yeah. a couple of those videos and they yeah. are and inspirational. I was,
2: I was making them a while back and I got sidetracked by the pandemic, but yeah, you know, we're gearing back up to do that now. So.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Good. I hope you continue that. Cause you're good at that as well. It's one of yeah. those things where you, you, get this spark of inspiration and you run with it. Yeah.
2: People seem to like to hear me talk about it, which is good because apparently I like to talk about it. So,
1: <laughs> Well, know. it's, it's a, uh, it's reflection. That's not just, you know, all about you. It's about what it, what it is you've been through and how it relates to just your surroundings and how to well, look and, at And
2: it. this thing that I've found that's like, you know, I'm not a religious person. I'm 23 years sober. I still don't believe in God, but I know that there's something powering my spirit that, that I have to work to stay connected to. And, and I'm able to explain it because there's an awful lot of people like me, you know, and uh, that, that don't want to wade through the stuff that feels churchy in some of the recovery programs. And I've got a way to approach it that avoids that. And if it can, if it saves one life, it's worth doing. So.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that equals love. And if God isn't love, then there is no God. So, you know, you have, you have found, you have found him if he be a, man or a person and he is love and that's uh that's what you uh, are are taking care of people by just kind of your your reflection i went full circle there but trying yeah.
2: to do trying to do my part you know that's like, right that's yeah. right well
1: you you are and i think that you have found uh found a lot of uh a, a soft comfortable place for your head and your heart and uh people love you
2: well it's just like whether it's music or whatever it's like there's a guy I really like who says that if you have the means, you have the responsibility and, you know, whether it's, whether your talent is writing songs and getting up on stage and kicking people's ass or breaking their hearts or, or painting a painting or, you know, or this thing, whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, everybody's yeah. got some kind of a talent, it's, you know, try and figure out what that is and go do it for people. So, yeah. you know, and well, all I good. mean by talent is something that comes easily. That doesn't seem like it qualifies as talent because it's too Sure. Easy. Yeah. So, i love yeah,
0: that. So, yeah well said well chris we thank you so much for being with us today what a great story what a great history and what a great guy ladies and gentlemen chris gates joining us on the talk louder podcast this afternoon on behalf of myself metal dave my co-host jason mcmaster we thank you all for listening to another episode of the talk louder podcast